Good morning to you. And uh, good morning to folk joining us on the, uh, the live stream. Well, we come to this um, final part of Paul's letter to the church at uh, Corinth, the second letter as it's called. Um, a famous and uh, very influential Swiss theologian from the early 20th century by the name of Karl Barth is usually credited by, for first using this statement, comes up here on the screen, a preacher should preach with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. In other words, the preacher should communicate with biblical integrity and also with cultural relevance. I thought of that as we come to the end of this series of preaching on 2 Corinthians because surely it won't have missed the attention of any of us that we are living at a critical point in our public life and politics. When centre stage is the issue of what values are central to good leadership and what can be expected in the relationship between our leaders and the people. And, you know, this is a vital and constant issue for us within the Christian church. And arguably, 2 Corinthians has, I think, at its core, this issue of Christian leadership and the relationship between leaders, pastors, preachers and God's people the Christian congregation. And are we being too bold? I don't think we are. When I claim that the Christian church should be displaying to our public square, our society, a Christ-like pattern of leadership. We are to be salt and light, Jesus says. And so we ought in some measure to model to the culture around us a biblical ideal for good, even godly leadership. And as we come to the end of this series, I want to focus on two sets of balances which feature cl clearly in the closing part here of the letter, although they have surfaced as a kind of thread right the way through the whole letter. The first set of balances concern Paul, and the second set of balances concern the people, that's us. Concerning Paul, the balance that I notice is between authority and humility in leadership. And concerning the people, the balance is between privilege and responsibility in discipleship. Well, let's turn to this first theme then of Paul's authority. I want in, in a moment to explain how what Paul is saying in this letter about the authority of leaders and preachers fits very uncomfortably with the values of the Greek Roman culture in which he lived and also how strikingly it fits uncomfortably into the values of our culture 
and society. That's always bound to be, isn't it, for the Christian church. We are to be counter-culture. But just now, the point he makes here is that his authority doesn't come from an obsession with success and status and power that was the spirit of his age and was certainly important to these super apostles that you will remember have occurred or been referred to throughout this series who were infiltrating the church at Corinth. No, Paul's authority, he makes very, very clear, came solely from the call of God on his life and the authority given to him by the risen Lord Jesus. Paul was an apostle because of the encounter that he had had with Jesus on the Damascus Road, there in Acts chapter 9, and the commission that the Lord gave him to take the gospel to the Gentile world. So there is one sense in which these passages in the letter about Paul's authority aren't relevant to us. He was, as the very first verse of the book says, he was an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Part of that unique group in the early church. And what he says in his letters is rooted in this special position of authority. Which, by the way, in passing, is why we regard his letters as part of God's inspired word, the Bible. But look, there is another sense where there are principles here about all truly godly Christian leadership and preaching. Church leaders and preachers do have an authority also based only on the call or ordaining of the Lord. A call confirmed or accepted by the church. And we have done that as we have called those to lead among us. So the apostle then and the preacher and church leader now should be able to say in verse 19 of chapter 12, we have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ. Or, as he says in chapter 10 and verse 18, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, a bit like the super apostles. No, the one whom the Lord commends is the one who has authority. That was the source of Paul's authority and the only source of authority still for Christian leaders, ministers, and preachers. But I wonder if you notice that in exercising that authority, Paul is going to say things to these Christians at Corinth that they would find uncomfortable, even offensive to hear. Verse 20, I am afraid that when I come to you, I may not find you as I want you to be. And you may not find me as you want me to be. In other words, I may find you far from the holiness and Christ-likeness that I long for you. And you will find me contrary to your hopes for a quiet life 
speaking with an authority that challenges you and makes you bristle. You can imagine, you can imagine the response. How dare he say that to us? Who does he think he is? And I tell you this, my friends, many people listening to biblical preaching today will have that same reaction. And the point here for us is that a wise church will look for leadership and preaching that isn't concerned to please the people, but rather is determined to be faithful to God's truth, as he says here. However unpopular, that makes the preacher in the eyes of the congregation. The preacher must have the courage to challenge the Lord's people. And the Lord's people, that's all of us, must have a willingness, if we are serious about following Jesus, to be challenged and to heed what God speaks through his servants. Chapter 13, verse 2, When I come to you, I will not spare those who sinned earlier. Sin, he says, sin will be named by the preacher. I've always thought it was a wise person who said that preaching is about comforting the disturbed. And so it is. But my friends, it's also about disturbing the comfortable. But notice what Paul emphasises here. Even the word of rebuke and challenge and judgment on sin is actually, do you notice, to the end of building up God's people and growing them into maturity in Christ. Verse 19 of chapter 12, everything we do or say is for your strengthening. And chapter 13 and verse 10, I write these things now so that when I come to you, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority, the authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Listen, when the preacher or church leader has the courage to challenge you, believe this, my friends, believe this, it's ultimately for your good, for your flourishing in Christ. Much as a surgeon's knife is ultimately for your healing and well-being. So he or she speaks to please God and build up the people not to please the people and build up their own popularity. That's godly leadership. A famous preacher of a, a, a previous generation, a great preacher, um, R.W. Dale, used to say, a preacher will never try to preach so as to please the people. The more the preacher loves them, that's the point, the more the preacher loves them, the less he will try to please them. And that leads neatly to the other side of the balance, Paul's humility. In verse 14 of chapter 13, we are weak in Christ, yet by God's power we will live with him to serve you. So alongside Paul's authority and in perfect balance with it sits his servant heart. 
his humility in perfect balance, which is another aspect of this man's Christ-like character. Do you remember how earlier he mentioned the danger that he faced in his ministry, the peril of pride in chapter 12, verse 9, the, the thorn in the flesh. And he says it was to prevent him being conceited. Pride, the constant peril, my friends, for all of us, but especially for those in leadership and for preachers. But do you see that pride was seen as a virtue in Paul's culture, in Paul's environment? The Greek and Roman culture admired hugely any exhibition and display of success and big numbers and power and status. The cult of the hero, the celebrity, the proud dominated Paul's society and culture. Whether you were a general who'd won a battle or an athlete who'd won a race or especially relevant to Paul because of what he says about being a poor speaker, an orator who defeated an opponent in debate, the applause, the honour was the same. You displayed your superiority, your power, your status. You'd humiliated your rival. Look, there was no room for humility in Paul's environment. And it's not a million miles away, is it, from our own celebrity culture where status and image are massively important. But notice Paul is having none of it. Paul's humility, he tells these Corinthian believers, has its source wholly in the character of Jesus, whose servant he is. Verse 4 of chapter 13. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, a willingness to stoop and to serve Look, that was a shocking, shocking thought in the culture of Paul's day, to stoop and to serve. It's very probable that Paul is writing this letter in Philippi. And I can't help recalling what Paul said to that Christian community in chapter 2 and verse 5. Have this mindset, the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Well, look, my friends, that's a strong word to each of us as followers of Jesus that you take into this new week. But it's especially relevant for any impositions of leadership or pastoral responsibility or preaching. Paul rigorously resisted the peril of grasping at status or power which corrupts or popularity which dazzles. He was bold in his authority, but he was humble in his service. Sacrifice, my friends, and self-giving were for Paul as they remain for us. Rock-solid evidence of genuineness as Christian believers and indeed 
as Christian leaders and preachers. But I would add also for all of us who are involved in leadership of any kind, parents, employers, business executives, doctors, dentists, teachers, whatever, and in many other spheres, including national and local politics, have this mindset that you have in Christ Jesus, says Paul. So we turn to the second set of balances, the tension that I notice very much in these verses and throughout the book, as well as in the whole letter, concerns God's people, you and I. If leaders and preachers are called to maintain a Christ-like balance between authority and humility, then look, Paul is teaching us this morning that church members have an equally crucial obligation to maintain a balance between celebrating privilege and accepting responsibility. Of course, it's uplifting and encouraging, isn't it, for the preacher or leader to remind God's people from God's word of all our privileges as Christians. We like that, and Paul does that throughout this letter as he does in all his letters. And he does it here in our passage. Chapter 13, verse 5, Christ is in you, my friends. Verse 11, the God of love and peace will be with you. And verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit will be with you all. Great promises as you launch out into this new week. What difference? What difference would it make, do you think, to our lives if as Christians we took these privileges and promises for real at face value? Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is resident, my friends, in your life. He says in uh, chapter 6 and verse 16, we are the temple. We are the temple of the living God. Do you believe that? Do you live in the light of that truth? The love and grace and peace and comfort and power of God are privileges that you and I have permanently as disciples of Jesus. And throughout the letter, he piles on example after example of the breathtaking privileges of being a disciple of Jesus. Right back in the first chapter, verse 4, Paul writes of the God who comforts us in all our troubles. Look, the whole testimony of Christian experience is that God doesn't necessarily um, take us out of suffering and difficult situations, but he gives grace sufficient, he says in chapter 12, earlier in chapter 12, grace sufficient and strength and courage to win through. And then in chapter 5 and verse 1, that great uh, passage about the future, the life to come that is ours in Christ. He refers to that especially precious privilege for the Christian of knowing that although the ageing process uh, takes its toll on us and some of us don't we know about it, we are privileged nonetheless to, to have an assured and guaranteed confidence that the best is yet to be, my friends. 
Death with its bleakness and hopelessness has been conquered. As Paul puts it in Ephesians 2 and verse 12, we are not as those around us. We are not as those who are without hope. What a privilege for the Christian in the face of life's uncertain future. And there are many, many other examples of the Christian's privileges. But look, that's wonderful, isn't it? And we can live with all that for hours on end. But look, a terrible peril in any church is that the congregation loves hearing all about the privileges and comforts. And the preachers are tempted to love the popularity of stroking the people's desire to be consoled and comforted. But notice how Paul resists that peril, as we must. In verse 5 of chapter 13, he calls these Christians at Corinth to accept their responsibility. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, he says. So the responsibility, Paul very clearly wants us to get the point that the privileges and the responsibilities are vitally connected. They belong together. You'll get the point if I swing round the two parts of verse 5 of chapter 13. Do you not realise that Christ Jesus is in you? What a privilege. What a wonderful assurance. But then, therefore, therefore, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. He's already pressed the point home in chapter 7. Therefore, since we have these promises, these privileges, therefore, since we have all these privileges, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. In other words, in the light of all the privileges and promises that are ours, my friends, in Christ, the disciple of Jesus, that's you and me, has a massive responsibility to echo Paul's mantra back in chapter 5 and verse 9. We make it our goal to please the Lord. Could you set out each morning, at the beginning of each day, with that mantra, we make it our goal to please the Lord. So if we examine ourselves and we are honestly, genuinely serious about making it our aim in every part of life to please the Lord, then listen, it means saying no to all that doesn't please him and honour him but rather grieves him. I don't know of any definition of holiness in the Bible that doesn't include the idea of separation from sin, from self-will. Separation for the glory of the Lord, which is what he's saying there in chapter 5. Separation for the glory and the will and the purpose of the Lord means, my friends, separation from 
any attitude, any ambition, any habit, any addiction, any relationship, anything that dishonours the Lord, examine yourself. Test yourself. In chapter 12 and verse 21, Paul says he will be grieved over many who have sinned and have not repented of their impurity. Corinth was absolutely notorious for its wickedness, for what he names here sexual sin and debauchery. And verse 20, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, disorder. Well, look, it may be any of those sins or none of them, but hear God's call to you this morning. Examine yourself. Be rigorous. Test yourself. Where do I need to repent of things in my life that dishonour the Lord and insult the huge privileges that are mine in Christ and stop me pleasing the Lord in all things. My friends, that's my responsibility. That's your responsibility as you leave this place and maybe find a quiet moment during the day to sort these things out with our risen Lord. So Paul has important things to say to us here about good leadership, the balance between authority and humility. And he has things here to say to us about Christian discipleship, the balance between celebration and privilege, but also responsibility in living in holiness before the Lord.